Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the fifth chapter. Jesus, continuing his Sermon on the Mount, said to the disciples, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister is something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you'll be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said you should not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all either at heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you. Do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. You may be seated. May the word of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We will get to that gospel text. We'll start in the first reading. In my occasionally humble opinion, the most prevalent misconception 
when it comes to both the Jewish and Christian faith is that when Scripture, Old Testament or New, gives us things like rules, uh, commandments, shoulds and should nots in terms of how we are to live our lives, the reason it gives us such is so that we, following the rules of God, will then be declared good in God's eyes, or at least good enough, especially compared to some other people we know. And then, because of that, we are now loved by God. And therefore, when we die, we will be rewarded with God's heaven, given to us good, or at least in our estimation, good enough people, as a reward for our goodness or our good enoughness or our self-declared gooder-than-others-ness. Scripture, let's be clear, calls all of us to walk in the ways of God. Not so that we will be loved, but because we are loved by a God who, loving us as much as God does, wants our lives to be the very best lives they can possibly be. And God being love, which Scripture says God is, well, here is a not surprise. In the twofold commandment, that Jesus said underwrites every single scriptural commandment there is, living our lives as the very best lives they can be boils down every single time to love. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Notice that, to love your neighbor as yourself, not to love your neighbor instead of yourself. Because if you don't love yourself like God loves you, you are not going to have much luck loving anybody else either. The book of Deuteronomy is full of laws, 34 chapters worth of laws, in which the author of Deuteronomy recalls a series of sermons that Moses gives to the people of Israel before he dies. Moses reminds them that not by their doing, but by God's doing, not by their choosing, but by God's choosing, not by their goodness, but by God's grace, they are God's people delivered by God from bondage in Egypt. Then he reminds them in the form of all kinds of laws, including in Deuteronomy an encore telling of the Ten Commandments, of their calling to live as such. Again, clearly not so that God would then become their God, but because God is their God, and that is meant to show in how they live their lives. Luther spoke of that very dynamic by commenting on the fact that in the Bible, at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, there is this, which is not, Luther said, a commandment. It's a promise. I am the Lord your God. And from that loving relationship already established come the commandments, as, as in, this is how you live in my love. It's kind of like when my daughter was little, and of course I gave her some rules, some shoulds and some should nots. But if she'd ever come to me and said, Daddy, I followed all of your rules, do you love me now? I mean, that would have broken my heart. I didn't give her any rules so that she'd earn my love. I gave her the rules because I loved her. And I wanted her to have the best shot she could at living the best life she could. In today's reading from Deuteronomy, Moses clearly reinforces the, the message that the reason to obey God's commandment is not because you will then truly be loved, you're already loved, but because rather than then you will truly be alive.
we heard the NRSV version read by Kelly. Here's the, here's the message translation. Look at what I've done for you today. I've placed in front of you life and good, death and evil. And I command you today, love God, your God. Walk in God's ways. Keep God's commandments so that you will live. Really live. Live exuberantly. Blessed by God, your God. But I warn you, if you have a chains of heart, refuse to listen obediently, willfully go off to serve and worship other gods, you will not live but die. Craig Kester from Luther Seminary uh, says that the 34 chapters of commandments that make up the book of Deuteronomy function essentially as an extended commentary on the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. With Deuteronomy being 34 chapters of what it looks like, what it looks like, says Moses, in Deuteronomy, in real life, is really life living. Our news feeds, of course, and the death with which they so often reek are, I think, an extended commentary on the fact that we in this world have given our hearts and our souls and our minds and our worship to other gods. And death, not life, in all manner of ways, for us and for others and for relationships and even for the planet itself, death has followed. The moral of that story being you can't live a life that is truly alive if the highest priorities and allegiance of your heart and soul and mind are truly out of whack. We don't obey God to be loved. We obey God truly to live. And according to the one who is love and who unconditionally loves you, loving is living. And not loving is dying. Which takes us to the psalm for today, which is the beginning of the longest psalm in the Bible, which is also the longest chapter in the Bible. If you didn't know that, you now know something. The longest chapter in the Bible being Psalm 119, which is 176 verses long, and which was written by a psalmist whose prevailing theme is the psalmist's love for God's law, God's word, which, according to the arguably the most famous verse in this psalm, is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Psalm 119, verse 103. Happy, the psalmist says, are they whose way is blameless, who follow apparently blamelessly the teaching of the Lord. Happy are they who seek, observe your decrees and seek you with all their hearts, who never do any wrong. But always, always, O oh Lord, walk in your ways, for you laid down your commandments that we should fully keep them. Which, of course, is true. God's gave God's laws to be obeyed fully so that we might live fully. But then having acknowledged that, having the psalmist turns subtly and in so doing reveals that this psalmist, it turns out, is a lot like me. And maybe you as well, as what the psalmist subtly turns to in verse 5 is what I kind of call an oops darn it moment of confession. For, oh, the psalmist says, oh, that my ways were made so direct that I might keep all your statutes. That I would not be put to shame 
when I regard all your commandments. Can you hear what's going on here? God's commandments are good and righteous and true, but those good and righteous and true laws are not something in this moment the psalmist hears as commending him for their, his righteousness, but rather judging them for, leaving them ashamed of their sins. What we have just discovered, of course, in this moment is that this psalmist is a Lutheran. Some of you smile as I knew you would, but I wasn't altogether joking. Because one of Luther's absolutely core convictions is that we being who we are, that being in all of our cases not perfect, when we who are the far from perfect sit down in the company of God's holy and absolutely perfect laws, God's laws every single time will sniff out, find and point to accusingly our way less than perfectness. In the Latin of Luther's catchphrases, lex semper accusat, the law always accuses. If you want an everyday example of how that plays itself out, note that almost every time you see a highway patrol car, you put your foot on the brake. The law always accuses. A second most common misconception when it comes to the Christian faith is that Jesus, being as perfectly loving as he is, backed off on all the laws and rules stuff. To the degree that he cared about them at all, he toned them down. He lowered the bar, turned them into things we could do, turned them into the kinds of rules that would pat us on the back and declare us righteous, or at least good and righteous enough, especially in our opinion compared to others whom we have determined are not as good as righteous as us. People who think like that, of course, <clears throat> want no part of that reading from the gospel today where that kind of self-righteously smug thinking, which likes to look down its self-righteous nose while thinking, God and me both know for a fact that I'm a pretty big deal, goodness-wise. God and me also know that, oh my goodness, when it's time for hell to be paid, it's sure going to suck to be you. In our reading from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus absolutely blows up that kind of thinking. You've heard it said, he said, quoting Moses, you should not murder. I say to you, if you're angry with a brother or sister, insult them, call them names. You're liable to God's judgment. You've heard it said, you should not commit adultery. I say to you, if a man, for example, looks at a woman lustfully, he's an adulterer already, whether he takes her to bed or not. He's already committed adultery with her in his heart. You've heard it was said that divorce is okay as long as the paperwork is filed correctly. But I say to you, divorce isn't okay. It's a promise not kept, unless your spouse has been sleeping around, in which case the promise has already not been kept. He goes on and says, you've heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say don't strike, when, don't strike back when struck. Someone hits you on one cheek, give them the other one. Someone steals your coat, give them your cloak. Someone begs for something, give them every time what they ask for goes on to say, you've heard that it was said, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise and the rain to fall on the evil and on the good, the righteous and the unrighteous. And then comes the kicker that brings this chapter, and maybe now we're thinking brings it mercifully uh, to a close. 
except that what Jesus does is say this, you must be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, darn it. All of a sudden, it seems to suck to be me. Because perfect, I surely am not. Let me just say a few things uh, with that, about that chapter. I mean, it's a, it's a, a giant of a chapter in the, in the, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. And I actually read more than we were assigned today because the season's coming to an end. Let me just say a few words about it. It was said that more than once, unlike other teachers, Jesus, it was said, taught as someone with authority. It's hard to see any more clear example of that than here, where Jesus essentially says, you know, the Bible says this, but here's what I say. That's what he says. He places his own authority as authority that can speak with authority, even over the authority of Scripture. It reinforces my conviction, and not everybody might be totally agrees with me, but my conviction that the Bible is indeed the Word of God as somehow revealed to or impressed upon or understood by human people and perhaps not always understood inerrantly perfectly. Jesus, on the other hand, to use God's, John's imagery, is God's Word in the flesh, walking and talking as one of us people and doing so perfectly. A second thing, there is not one of us, right? If we were actually listening to that reading from Matthew 5, there is not one of us who didn't feel judged by it, accused by it, right? I say that if you didn't, you weren't listening. And some of us then maybe went on to think, well, I thought Jesus loved me even though I've sinned, and now here he's making me feel bad for sinning. Now, you can go there if you want. Except that, as I said a moment ago, here's what I think is going on here, and it's all about God's love for you. Because there are people in the world who do religiously divide the world into people like them who are good or at least pretty good compared to others, others who they see themselves as better than, not just in their eyes, but in the eyes of God. And one thing I think Jesus is clearly doing in this chapter is just plain obliterating that kind of thinking. Because by the time his understanding of the righteousness of God has its way with all of us, there is no distinction any kind of distinction between the goodness or lack of same for any of us. You take these words of his here seriously, and we are all, we are all under the weight of these words, driven to our knees on the completely level ground found at the foot of the cross, where we learn that there is such a thing as perfect righteousness, but it's not an achievement by any of us who've perfectly risen above the power of all our sin. It is rather a gift for all of us who, from the cross and Easter's empty tomb, are promised, are given the forgiveness of our sin. And for, in being forgiven, our righteousness is perfect. A final thing, another reason that Jesus sets the bar of righteousness as high as he does in the Sermon on the Mount, as high in fact as righteousness that is perfect, is that he didn't come to earth to usher in something he called the kingdom of pretty good, or the kingdom of good enough, or the kingdom of good compared to other people. He came to usher in, starting now and to be fulfilled fully one day, something he called the kingdom of heaven. 
And I think what he's doing here is just giving us an oh-so-holy glimpse of what, when at last that kingdom is fully come, will be perfectly like. There will be no murder with either guns or words, for the kingdom of heaven will be like life, not death. There will be no relationships estranged or sinned against, for the kingdom of heaven will be a place of the reconciled, not the divided. There will be no revenge, for the kingdom of heaven will be defined by mercy. There will be no theft, for the kingdom of heaven will be defined by giving, not taking. There will in the end be no more beggars for givers to give to. For in that kingdom, givers will make sure all already have what they need without needing to beg. And there will in the end not even be any enemies anymore, even to consider hating for the kingdom of heaven will be defined by the healing power of the most powerful power there is, that being the power of God's love that is perfect. Love that is perfect love is not something any of us will ever attain to in this life. But love that is perfect love is something that you are loved with here and now as you are and who you are and that will never change all the way unto eternal life. In the meantime, as you are able, and you are able, as you are able in this life, choose love. And in doing so, you will be choosing life. Amen.